0: Welcome to The Busy Latter-day Saint, where righteous desires and living come together. Here, members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints discuss their challenges and successes in studying the scriptures. I'm your host, Richard Bernard. The music for this program is by Marvin Goldstein and used with his permission. If you have enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to comment on this episode or the podcast in general. To leave a comment, click on the link in the show notes. Today we have with us two wonderful and delightful and talented women. They are producers of the upcoming Matthew Cowley documentary. You'll enjoy their stories of how they met and the events that led to the producing of this documentary, and of course, their approach to the scriptures, and there is much, much more. So let's begin. Here are Marcy and Liz. Well, Marcy and Liz, welcome. I'm excited. This is the first time I've done two people at one time. And I'm here in the home of Marcy's uh, son's house here in American Fork. And I'm looking forward to this. Uh, Marcy, why don't you start and tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'd be happy to. I have um,
1: a unique position maybe compared to some of the people you interview. I am at the very front end. I was born in 1946. I'm at the very front line, I guess I would say, of the boomer generation. So in 75 years, I have had a chance to experienced some things and learned some things. And um, just very happy that I'm here and able to share some of those experiences at this age. My own father died at age 56. And so I'm mm-hmm. at, at, at which is interestingly the same age that Matthew Cowley passed away. And that's one of the topics that we're going to be talking a little bit about today, sharing with you a project about Elder Matthew Cowley, who was an apostle for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, I grew up in a family, I was born into uh, the LDS faith and uh, through divorce and some other circumstances, did not have um, an active family as I was growing up. So it was a little bit of a process for me to finally end up at BYU, which was not my plan. But I ended up there and uh, met the person I ended up marrying and uh, went on from there. But I'm a filmmaker and most people who are filmmakers our filmmakers, by the time they're 30, (laughs) that's considered old age and probably even younger now with the new technologies and things. But um, I thought I'd be an English teacher. And so I majored in English and uh, my second day of student teaching, I learned that was not for me. So I quickly switched to my minor, which was social sciences, got married, moved to California and went into criminal justice. And so I spent a few years um, dealing with inability to have children for a number of years and some complications that were involved with that. Eventually, we had six children, but it took a while. So those early years, I was working in um, criminal justice, teaching, teaching uh, college courses in that, training police officers, working in probation and parole. And the thing that I noticed was that um, there was a big backlog in the court systems, especially trying to get juveniles well, anyone really through the court system but i was working a lot with juveniles with serious criminal backgrounds and they would end up being um, incarcerated for months and months and um, along with that because partly i guess because of my inactivity as a family i i hadn't received a patriarchal blessing until i was well on my way through college and someone suggested it so i got a blessing and one of the lines in my blessing which I consider to be scripture. I, I don't know if that's officially a
0: yeah, as it like is. patriarchal
1: blessing is a scripture. Yeah. One of the lines said that a way would be open for me to complete my education. Hmm. And at the time I thought that's odd because I'm already almost through. I'm going to be an English teacher and I didn't think much about it. But later, as I got into the criminal justice world, I thought there's something to that. So when my children, which I ended up having six, uh, when they the youngest got old enough to be in school, I was in my 40s, I thought, I'm going back to school and I'm going to get a law degree and I'd like to be a judge and I would like to help unclog the system. So I was on, in the process of... of um, I enrolled at the University of Utah. We'd moved back from California by then and I enrolled in a joint JD and communication degree and I was well on my way. I thought. By the time my children are old enough to go on missions and go to college, I'll have my law degree and I'll, you know, we'll be set. But one day I decided I was in between classes and during the lunch hour, I decided, I think I'll see about making a video. It was the late 80s and that's when video was coming out. So I walked over to the fine arts department and the film director, Brian Patrick, still remember him well, he said, would you like a tour? I said yeah i just want to take a class on video making in case i would like to do that he took me through and somewhere in the process of the fine, of going through the fine arts department at the university of utah i had this overwhelming impression i was to do film well i'm in my mid-40s i already have a college degree so i applied for the brand new Master of Fine Arts degree in Film at Brigham Young University. I had graduated in Indiana, that's another story, but I, grad, I applied for that program and I went in for my interview and they said, um, and your film background is exactly what? <laughs> I said, a zero. And they said, I don't think so, You'd have, and they gave me a long list of things I would have to do. So, next year I went back, started Film 101. And, worked my way up and got that degree and by the time I was ready, to, grad, to well, well on my way to graduation in that program, there were only three of us that were ever admitted and they called me into the office. I was the, the tail end because I'd had to wait a year to get all my requirements. They called me in and the director said, we're closing this program and we'd like to know if you would like to switch to a PhD in film instead of the MFA which is the, you know, the, the performance side of, of film. And I said, I don't know. They said, well, it, it'll still be a great degree. We will help you through, but you haven't finished your coursework. So if we could do that, we're closing the program. <laughs> and I thought about it. And then the director said, I'm not kidding you, words d- directly, I think, except for one word, cause I wrote it down out of my patriarchal blessing. She said, "Awake! I'm sure we can find a way to be open for you to complete your mm. education. And even now saying that, as soon as she said that, I said, no, I'm in the right place. I need to finish this. (laughs) And so I did, not knowing exactly what I would ever do with it. So I finished the degree, and my first day of doing an internship during that process, the director of the film department at BYU said, you know, there's this project, they're working on over at BYU Broadcasting. Why don't you go and see if you can help? That ended up being, the Ancestors Project for PBS, ran two seasons, and through a process of just <laughs> being in the right place at the right time and probably a little inspiration, I was had the great privilege of being executive producer of that project and taking it through and getting my experience in family history, related oral history, documentary filmmaking. And I met Liz. <laughs> Liz, wow. I'll turn that to you.
0: That's that is very interesting. So, you spent two days as an English teacher and decided that students were the problem. (laughs) You know, I I taught school for 15 years to the deaf and hard of hearing. And I've always said that the, teaching is the greatest job in the world if it wasn't for the students. (laughs) So, 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 you went from that into basically working in the judicial system and then wanted to be a judge, and oh, here you are, as a filmmaker. That's very interesting. Well, now, how did you meet Liz? Liz, how did you meet? Okay.
2: Well, I'm at the younger end of the baby boom boomer uh, generation, um, and born and raised in California till I was 12, and then we moved back. I'm from a large family, um, very active on both sides. You know, seven generations of pioneer stock, all of that but we moved back to, uh, to American Fork when I was in, excuse me, in seventh grade. And so I ended up back in Utah, um, uh, got through high school, and then in, at BYU met my husband through a friend and was studying um, actually classical piano with Reed Nibley at BYU. Um, and then, let's see, we left BYU, went to grad school in Southern California USC where my husband got an MBA went to California up north in Sacramento, where he's from, for a few years, and then came back to Provo, where my husband got a job with the School of Music. And that's where we intersect, because for a, just a short season, I believe Marcy was employed by the School of Music, helping with something. I think it was the marching band, wasn't it? The color card, or? Anyway, yes. my husband and Marcy met, and Marcy happened to mention to my husband that she was working on a film project on the side and needed a researcher, and he said, well, you should hire my wife because I had become very involved in family history research. Uh, Long story, I won't go into that, but it became a a burning passion for me for a lot of reasons. And I was, at that moment, literally fasting and praying for um, a way to get to England, to do research on my family. Remember that? Uh I had hit a dead end, I'd done everything I could do. And Marcy comes along, We, we probably shouldn't tell this, no, the story of the ZCMI,
1: absolutely go ahead so Liz.
2: they'd never met but my husband was telling me about this woman and we go shopping at the old ZCMI in Orem we run into each other and just hit it off immediately to the point where I had been trying on clothes and we talked such a long time my husband I think fell asleep in the chair and the, the, the woman that was you know running the, the clothing department put my own clothing back on the rack and I'm wearing the you know the <laughs> outfit it was like we hit it off big time and the final thing Marcy said to me soon after that meeting was, she hired me to, to do some research on this, one of the projects, I can't remember which one It was one Ancestors, now. I'm Ancestors, sure. I think uh-huh. it was. And she said, oh, and by the way, how would you like to go with us to England? We're going to go to a film conference hmm. at Bristol. And I thought I was going to,
1: hmm.
2: anyway, lose it. It was, <laughs> yeah, i kind of like to go, actually. you know. So that changed my life in a big way. And wow. um, we had a great time on that trip but it opened a whole new world to me of that particular um, film conference, but also some family history doors opened for me in a big way. So that's when we started to kind of figure out there was this theme between us Mm -hmm. of filmmaking, which was something I hadn't even thought of. And secondly, this theme of family history in filmmaking, which has been constant really for all the projects that we've worked on. And soon after that, a few years into that, I also helped, Found the recording side of the School of Music. It used to be known as Tantera Records. Um, now it's just BYU Records, I believe. But um, that was sort of something I did on the side. Um, well I mean, film projects—they're—they're they're intermittent. You know, you have one, and then there's a gap, and mm-hmm. then you have another one, and then you know. So I, you do other things sometimes. And a constant for me has been family history um, research. And I've gone back to England many times after that initial trip. Mm-hmm. That. Marcy so kindly made available to me. Uh, It was a great, great experience. But um, my husband and I have two children, uh, two sons, grown sons, and three grand grandsons now, one in heaven. And he continues to work for the School of Music. And and then I've had just many opportunities from those times to work on various film projects. But all of them have seemed to have had either a connection to the church or to Family History of BYU Broadcasting. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I've worked on various things. Does that kind of sum it up for you? And Liz
1: was one of the greatest uh, finds in my history of being involved with film. She was ready-made for this and she's now, today, these years later, a much better director than I am. I always say, let me just go take a nap while you deal with all the set and everything (laughs) because she's got the eye for camera. She's just been
0: a great asset. We balance each other very well. So, blessing. School of Music, uh, your husband still teaches there.
2: He doesn't teach. He's actually the financial administrator. He's the, uh, the assistant oh. director.
0: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> did you get a degree in music? or?
2: My, no, I switched to history.
0: Oh, you switched to history. First okay. I was going to
2: do family history. And then I realized I liked the broader history. Okay. And it fits nicely with film because history tends to be sort of how we approach a lot of our projects. is The past. What's yeah. going on in the past. Yeah. And stories. So,
0: yeah. OK. Yeah, but while I was setting up, you were asking me um, if I played piano. I didn't get to tell you the, the whole story of that. I, I actually play the organ for our ward on the first Sunday of every month. I think my wife's a little embarrassed to go on that Sunday <laughs> because if there's going to be a mistake, I'll make it. Um, I had to learn to play all instruments. And I'm sure my organ teacher is turning over in her sweet grave. And um, in fact, a story. Um, This is years after I graduated and came back and decided to go in the insurance business after traveling the world with, you know, performing, and um, so I went to this woman who I knew quite well. She was a highly respected accompanist in, in Los Angeles. And um, so I, her first name was Mary, and I I said, Mary, I called up Mary. I said, Mary, I want to start taking piano lessons again. She said, okay, great. So I went over to her house and she said, what would you like to do? I said, well, uh, can I start with a Bach invention? And she said, okay, so come back in a week and, you know, play for me. I said, okay, so I worked all week on that Bach invention, played it to perfection. There was not a single thing wrong with it, and there was dead silence. And she thought for a minute, she looked at me and she says, now let's make some music. (laughs) So, Uh, technically it was great. (laughs) From a musical standpoint, she said, let's talk about phrasing a little bit. (laughs) phrasing? (laughs) So, anyway, she was... uh, Mary Gray was her name, and she was such a a tremendous uh, pianist, and I took a little bit of organ from her. Um, But um, every time I play, I'm making mistakes. In fact, I started the... uh, Sacramento, I think two weeks ago, and in the second measure, I had to stop and start again. I don't know what it was. <laughs> and so I tell my wife, I said, you probably don't like when I play. She said, well, it's, it's okay. It's, I said, you're probably embarrassed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, okay, I'm sorry. They've asked me to do this. I've told them in the beginning, I'm not an organist, and I do the best I can. So my fingers sometimes just, and I've got small hands. Mm-hmm. And so... Sometimes stretching is a little difficult, and I'm finding a little bit of arthritis. So anyway, I do the best I can, and I figure if they don't like it, they can fire me. That's right. <laughs>
2: well, I have a special love for church music, and I I just salute you for doing that. That's
0: marvelous. Well, you know, I, I think we, sometimes we're given a church position to grow. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes it doesn't mean we're qualified. It just, because we've got some great organists in there, and they're in the audience while I'm you know, making these mistakes, and I, and they're so nice to just keep that expression like, it's okay.
2: Yeah, I think it keeps it real. I I don't mind mistakes ever. I yeah. think it's part of the process. Yeah. We're all supposed to just be human and yeah. make a lot of. It takes a lot of mistakes to get through life.
0: Yes, it does. <laughs> well, now you worked on a Matthew Cowley um, project. How did that get started?
1: You know, we. As Liz and I were both uh, leading into we to this idea that we were very much drawn to oral history so many of our film I would say most of our films that we've done have been based in that uh, genre so uh, an opportunity came up in the early 2000s to go to Hawaii uh, and I asked Liz if she would be the Co-director of the of capturing the 40th anniversary of the Polynesian Cultural Center
2: for BYU for
1: BYU Broadcasting, broadcasting yeah. for uh, for yeah for uh, broadcast. So we found ourselves very. This happened very quickly. It was like happening the next. Most of our things you'll hear in our experiences have come to us in very unusual ways. I'll backtrack just a little bit. Before we went to Hawaii, I was um, I had a great opportunity to be a presenter at Education Week one year and uh, talked about oral history interviews and things like that. And I got a call from Elder Dele, President Del LeBaron, who'd been the mission president in South Africa when the priesthood revelation came. And he was going to Africa for one of his last um, visits and he had been doing, he'd been several times gathering audio interviews, but he wanted to get some of the key people on video, had found my application for Ed Week through correlation, I guess, <laughs> some strange back door and asked if I could pull a small team together and go with them this time. And three weeks later, I was on a plane to Africa with a, a small group gathering those oral histories and uh, it just became, it, it just, things just tended to open up that way f- for the kinds of projects that we've done, which we will emphasize even, <laughs> even in more detail with the Matthew Calley Project. But anyway, we went to Hawaii, and we were capturing this reunion without a lot of notice. And um, we noticed, but we did notice that that I would say, were, were there any interviews we did? I'm, um, the majority of interviews would eventually come back to talking about Elder Matthew Kelly and his influence in the building of the Polynesian Cultural Center because it had been his dream, really, to have a place where the people, the Maori people from New Zealand could come to to of the Hawaii Temple. And so, as these comments kept coming up through the labor missionaries' comments and and other things, we just felt drawn to it. Liz, what would you add to that?
2: Well, yeah, and I vaguely remember um, growing up, hearing stories about him from time to time. Uh Of course, he passed away in 1953, so he predates me, but almost um, everybody, my generation and older that served a mission, Uh, Had heard of him because there were these little cassette tapes particularly this miracles talk that we'll get into later That circulated circulated around the mission um, To many of the the missionaries they like to listen to it and so he was well known I think even Mm -hmm. even then in 2003 during this project, but there was a certain I don't know aura I guess about him and just his his life because many There are many great leaders in our church, but um, when they pass on they're they pass on, and people stop talking about them. But he was unusual because people still talked about him and remembered him. And, and then, of course, there was such a great spirit at, at this event you know, in 2003 at the Polynesian Cultural Center. It was just undeniable. And I think I just turned to you and said, we should consider doing a piece on him maybe. This is, there's, there's a lot to follow up on here. It, it just kind of had a spirit about it, didn't it?
1: Yeah, and you caught that date there. This has been almost 20 years ago. Yeah. that we first got this idea that there needed to be something about Matthew Kelly, And it has been a journey it
2: has really been since a journey. then, because
1: no one has ever commissioned us to do it. We just felt called yeah. to, to gather these stories. So a few well, years later?
2: So, yeah, there was also an elderly gentleman in my ward in Provo, where we live, who had served as a missionary uh, under Matthew Kelly when he was a mission president in New Zealand back in the 40s. And he would often bear his testimony and mention this. And so it was on my mind when I went to a devotional at BYU soon after that, well, maybe in about 2005, six, <laughs> somewhere in there. And a, a, an administrator at BYU gave a talk and mentioned the great legacy of Matthew Cowley in New Zealand. Uh, he did mention it a couple of times in his talk. So I went up to him after and I said, I really enjoyed your comments about Matthew Kelly. Uh, there's a gentleman in my ward who served as a missionary under him. And this man looked at me and he said, Oh, I owe, so much to Elder Cowley. He converted my grandparents. He's the reason I'm in the gospel. You know, we, we owe so much to him. He said, and then this is what really surprised me. He said, if I put together a, a banquet at BYU, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll sponsor it. Would you find all the other missionaries that served under Matthew Cowley and bring them to this dinner? And if you do that, uh, you could also have a camera in the other room and do some interviews. I mean, who who offers that? You know, <laughs> so we said sure. You know, and that's how it began, really. Wow. And then we talked to a friend of ours who's a great cameraman, and his father had served a mission in New Zealand, so of course he'd love to help us. And it just started right. right a lot then. of
1: volunteer effort. And that right.
2: was when we first started to realize that this was kind of a Matthew Kelly project coming about in a very. Matthew Kelly kind of way, mm-hmm. because he was a man led by the spirit and a man uh, really that lived a life of miracles. And so we started to feel the spirit of this man mm-hmm. and we did. I, I had been to a funeral in my family, met um, the, one of the speakers was Glenn Rudd, since passed on. But he spoke at my cousin's funeral. And of course, he was the lead missionary under Matthew Calley. Uh, he had kept them all organized and met over the years and then he was he was the one that went with matthew cali after he was an apostle to many of the blessings that he gave so of course i knew him and we called him and he got us in touch with all the missionaries that were still alive we we invited them to this dinner sponsored by this wonderful administrator for at no cost to us it was just amazing wasn't it we interviewed all these men with broadcast quality video um, and kind of just looked at each other like, what?
1: And, and not knowing, <laughs> not, not knowing. knowing what the end yep. purpose was going to
2: we be. just know it was just a windfall. Together. We better yeah. do it.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, what is the process of making a documentary? What I'm hearing, it's... Um, <laughs> you follow. it. It, it mm-hmm. just things start following into place it's not it's not like making a movie where you've got to have a script and a screenwriter and, and all of that I mean it's some, just
2: some documentaries do have scripts sort of we mm-hmm. didn't certainly have one mm-hmm. then another, another well we didn't thing. even
1: know at the time that it would actually be a film we, yeah. we really didn't know
2: we just knew that mm-hmm. this man had offered and we couldn't say no mm-hmm. and we had heard enough good stories about him in Hawaii to just think yeah there's something here So then, um, Liz, I'm going to interject
1: one thing there along that topic. We should probably mention that from early days, even Ancestors' days and the the Hawaii project, we've always considered our work to be archivally significant. So in, in the cutting room floor, in a feature film, you've got about a 1 to 20 ratio, if you're lucky, of film that actually makes it into the film. In a documentary, especially with video, now that it can run forever, it can be a lot a lot lower ratio that actually makes it into a documentary film. But we have felt impressed that the interviews we gather are significant and need to be archived. That's another topic that Liz especially is very versed in. Right,
2: That's our background,
1: Uh
2: our love for family history. We feel, as I'm listening to these people, I'm thinking your grandson or granddaughter future is gonna wanna hear this. I'm not gonna just throw out everything that I don't use Mm -hmm. in my film. I'm Mm -hmm. gonna keep this. And so that's what we've always done. We've, we, it takes a little more time and money to do that, but um, we feel strongly about that. So then, um, what happened next, Marcy? I guess we, we got a, I got a call one day. Again, another windfall, a, a secretary on campus at BYU had heard about this dinner maybe, I don't know. She knew about us and she said, are you the lady that's working on that project about Matthew Callie? His grandson is coming to our department for homecoming to receive an, uh, an award. Mm-hmm. And if you'd like, you could come interview him. We'll let you use our conference room. <laughs> you know? She just opened the door. <laughs> who has this happened? Mm-hmm. So we, she gave me his phone number, all those things. And that's how we were introduced to the family of Matthew Kelly. And I think we ended up going to another home to do that set of interviews. But that opened up his, the grandson, who, by the way, um, was a professor of, I believe, ophthalmology or mm-hmm. in Iowa which is interesting. Remember, Matthew Calley healed the little blind baby, Mm -hmm. and here's his grandson healing uh, eyesight in a medical way, but we got to interview him, his wife, his children, so the great-grandchildren. You know, we're pinching ourselves, like, this is so great. Why is this happening, you know?
0: Now, is this project actually done? Is it ready for the public, or where are we at? It's
2: getting close.
1: so
0: you don't have a timeline you're just
1: our, tar- our target timeline now is tighter than it, it's um uh, well, tighter is not the word is uh more probable than it ever has been and that is probably early 2022 for the documentary mm-hmm. but short pieces maybe because of the way technology has changed the distribution process of film short videos uh, may come out a little sooner mm-hmm. toward the end of the year Mainly through the BYU Speeches Department, oh, okay. it's partnering with us. And son. again,
2: I should add, at, at this point in the, the the experience, we're still not sure whether we're dealing with a bio of his life, or we, we really didn't know. We we're still in this investigative mm-hmm. process, having these things fall into our lap. Years
1: ago, you're saying. Yeah. I mean, now we'd know, but but yeah, years we ago didn't we didn't know. We didn't
2: know then, and so we gathered that set of interviews. And I think it was through the family we ended up getting invited to the New Zealand Missionary Society soon after and meeting more contacts, which led to the next big (laughs) breakthrough. Do you want to tell that story? Well, we
1: had, through good fortune, we had an opportunity to interview President Monson, who was very interested in sharing some thoughts about Matthew Cowley. He had been, that's a different story, and um, Elder John Groberg, who's whose Other Side of Heaven mm-hmm. he shared with us, and that will be in some of the, the productions that go out to the public. Uh, his interview is great. He talks about how it was Matthew Cowley who actually got him through his first experiences on, on his mission mm-hmm. because uh, he was not drawn to the miracles talk necessarily, but he was drawn to a different BYU speech called um, a simple life, living I think, a life. living a simple mm-hmm. life. And he said, when I got to, well, I shouldn't go too much into this because we'll probably save it for a short, but Elder Groberg said that when he got to Tonga, um, it was just a few year, a few months after Elder Kelly had passed away. And he said, I must've said a hundred times a day, I, I can do this. <laughs> I can live a simple life and, and witness the kinds of things that hey, he had learned through, through those talks. So we were able to capture some of these very interesting uh, elder mm-hmm. uh, brother, President Paul Mendenhall. Uh, Others are also captured and will be uh, used significantly in the productions that we put Mm -hmm. out there.
0: Now, how is this going to be distributed?
1: We are in negotiations right now with broadcast. Uh, our Our first, I wouldn't say our first choice, but what seems like the most logical home for it is BYU Broadcasting. So we have open conversations with them, and um, we're waiting to finalize mm-hmm. some of those things. So, okay.
0: right. What what have both of you learned from this experience up to this point?
2: Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is that wonderful scripture in in First Nephi four six. I was where Nephi is going back to get the plates, you know, with his brothers, and they're unsuccessful on a couple of t- times, and then they. He says, "I was led by the spirit, not knowing beforehand. We had to learn to trust, and we had to learn to follow promptings and and doors that opened, even when we didn't really know where this was going to go, didn't we? Mm-hmm. So
1: we had decided to go to New Zealand. We felt that was important for our work to gather some stories there, and we had a a, a trip s- scheduled and." Um, for some reason, well, you had an accident. Elizabeth was in a was car in accident. accident.
2: There, was a, uh, there was an earthquake.
1: The, well, we found out later. We canceled, and then we found out later, we're glad we canceled because that was the weekend that the big earthquake New Zealand down. earthquake oh, happened, okay. and we wouldn't have had the people coming that we had gone to see. So right. a couple of years later, we were still thinking we, we need to get to New Zealand, it's not happening. And I was up late one night just checking. We, we had been invited to the final 50-year labor missionary reunion in Hamilton, New Zealand before they began changing that venue, the old BYU or the New Zealand College. So I'm up one night looking at airfares and I see this remarkable airfare to New Zealand and it's about one in the morning and I see there are two seats left. So I start texting Liz, this is what, 2014, 13 something? I start texting Liz, Liz, are you awake? Nothing, nothing, Liz, are you awake? And finally, after I text her, it was, by then it's about two in the morning, I had my, my reservation ready to hit by. I was gonna go no matter what. But I'm trying to get Liz <laughs> and I finally wake her up and she says, what is going on? I said, Liz, I need to know right now, can you go to New Zealand? She goes, well, of course I wanna go. I said, well, it's a great deal. It's, so this is Friday I... morning. I said, it's leaving Sunday. No. She said, okay.
2: I, I went, nudged my husband in his sleep. Are you okay if we go to New Zealand this weekend? <laughs> yeah.
0: So while he was asleep, not sure what he was, <laughs> he was answering. Like, sure. <laughs> you know, he wakes up the next morning and goes,
2: did I just dream or did you? <laughs> yeah, honey, the flights are booked. This was what day? It was uh, Friday
1: morning and we left Sunday.
2: Yeah. Wow. It was very sudden, but it just fell into place. Yeah. And the the rates were incredible. And we ended up stopping in Hawaii on the way. So we that was another windfall. We We got to... Well, on the way back, I should say. Mm-hmm. But um, we had a wonderful trip. Everything fell into place, it was beautiful. Uh, we got to see all the sites related to Matthew Kelly's life. We met a lot of lovely people. And probably the site that was most uh, impressive to me, and I'll bring this up here, because it was the, the, the Duncan home. And this is where Matthew Kelly uh, lived when he was a young missionary and when he, um, retranslated the Book of Mormon into Maori. It had already been translated, but he re- redid it and improved it. And then he translated the, the, the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price for the first time into Maori in that house. And that was it, that really made an impression on us, didn't
1: it? Um, it was a very powerful experience to be standing there and, and the family has preserved it, uh, not as a monument, it's just a family Home still but they've preserved the room where this translation took place and and as we read as we learn more about Matthew Cowley's process of translating the Book of Mormon especially uh, retranslating translating it um, he was with two married gentlemen and they would they would pr- read read an English scripture a verse and then they would pray about it very much like you would hear like we've heard of Joseph Smith and those translations and go by inspiration and he um, he eventually got his his so his was accepted more often than the Maori people who were helping him they, they finally he just did it on his own and he stayed an extra was it two years in his mission at least to do this mm-hmm. so he was there a total of five years because the second uh, part of that was this translation Well what we learned in his his description of what he experienced translating was very much similar to what Joseph Smith would have has said and Probably experience, which is you have to have a lot of faith and prayer to know that you're doing it right. And as we, it took it took us until just recently to really realize that that's one of the things that stood out in Matthew Kelly's blessings, his miracle healing blessings. He didn't rush right in. Many times he would take his time to pray to to really know what to say and. Um, and that, those are some of the things that and fasting with prayer to, to follow it through are, are some things that I think we can all learn from um, his experience to know that there's a, a great deal of preparation on our part often to really seek the kind of faith and uh, permission actually through the Lord to do what he did. To know what God's will is. right. To be
2: able to have the confidence to call down Hi. the powers of heaven, and I guess we, you know, we've asked the question over and over. What, where did the, how did this man get so much faith, and where did this come from? And I think as we've looked back through the years of our investigation of his life, I think that experience that he had translating the scriptures as a young man must have been uh, absolutely foundational to him, and <laughs> life changing and. And really strengthening to his his faith, um, and I, I I really do believe it was probably one of the great sources of of who he is and why he became who he was. Don't you think, Marcy? I Absolutely. It, it just is very clear to me now. And and at the same time, we're having to exercise our own faith to be able to you know discover the story and make this piece. And I guess you know as I go back to that scripture that I just mentioned in First Nephi, um, you know Nephi and his brothers. Um, well, we we may not have to slay a a wicked king (laughs) like Nephi did to get the plates, but we have to slay our doubts. We have to slay our fears. We have to slay all kinds of obstacles to get to do the things that the Lord wants us to do. And I guess that's what we saw in Matthew Calley over and over was this willingness to um, overcome tremendous obstacles all the time. We saw it again as we heard stories about when he was a mission president you know, years later and then when he was an apostle giving blessings. It, it, it made such an impression on me. It's been very strengthening over and over again to uh, contemplate this. But I think that core experience of translating the scriptures must have been absolutely life-changing for him. Mm.
0: Foundational, no question. Has there been an autobiography? Or did he do an autobiography? Or is there just a biography on him? or?
1: Um, there are t- there were two books published shortly after he passed away. Um, one of them was overseen by President Monson. Mm. And uh, one of them is Matthew Calley, Man of Faith. The other is Matthew Calley Speaks. And they don't reflect his own personal view of what he did but it captures a lot of what he said and so one is all of
2: his com- compiled, compiled talks mm-hmm. and the other one is mm-hmm. a biography um, but that was you know over 50 years ago 60 years right. ago yeah. now um,
0: and in the process you've read you've read these books well, of course, obviously studied them well, studied and then, them <laughs> and then
2: glenn rudd who was probably the one that knew him best After he came back from his mission time as a mission president and served a lot with him, has gathered many many of his stories and published some self-published some things that we also have drawn from. And then a more recent book has been put together by um,
1: uh, Brianna Mm Alavison,
2: which we've enjoyed. It's kind of a sort of a highlights of all all of these works. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, That's a millennial perspective, really. Very short. Excerpts that mm-hmm. cover it's called uh, mighty, miracles. mighty miracles mighty miracles and I,
2: I guess what impressed us about her book, which just came out a few years ago, is that someone of the youngest or the younger generation found, still found him relevant and compelling mm. and uh, he's he's just got a fresh sort of spirit about him he's yeah, funny.
0: I, he funny. I I know the name I always related it to healings and miracles, Mm -hmm. but I really know nothing about the man. How did he die?
1: Wow (laughs) So Elder Rudd, who we've talked about here um, knew him probably as well as anyone and um, when he was 56 years old
2: 50 yeah,
1: 56 56. 1953 Mm He was 56 years old, and he'd been an apostle since he came back from New Zealand in 1946, which is interesting. Um, he didn't know he was going to be an apostle. Uh, um, there's a long story about his his father had been an apostle, and there's a lot with that story that we won't go into, but he he had never been a bishop. He'd never been a stake president. He had been a mission president and a missionary, and the Sunday school superintendent, I think, was his... I'm not sure about that, but it wasn't... Uh, he didn't have a long track record of preparation to Mm -hmm. be an apostle and so uh he didn't he wasn't even thinking about that and uh president smith at the george george albert smith uh asked him contacted him before general conference in 1946 he'd only been home a couple months and said I would like you to come and sit up close in conference because we may call on you to have some remark, depending on the time, to have some remarks about um, your mission present experience, or if not a lot of time, I'll call on you for the closing prayer. So he, he said, sure, you know, I'll, I'll be there. And um, he was telling Elder Rudd and Elder Rudd said, do you have a ticket to get in? You have to have a ticket to get in and sit up close. He said, I don't have a ticket. He, So Elder Rudd, who was a bishop in the same stake where President Monson had served, Elder Rudd said, well, I'll I'll get you my ticket so you can at least get in. So he gets in and they do the calling of the new apostle. It was President Grant had died. And they call this new apostle and they call Elder Matthew Callie out of the audience. No interview, no notice. And his wife was flaming upset.
2: She was home, (laughs) she She didn't know.
1: You you didn't tell me, you did not tell me. he yes. said, "I did. I didn't know. I <laughs> no." And he she was started just,
2: getting phone calls at her yeah, house. Yeah, yeah. that's oh. how she found out. Wow! Yeah. Can you ima- We can't imagine that yeah. today, but that's yeah. how they did it.
1: Yeah. And so, so he had that experience, and then he served until 1953. He was 56 years old. He was in relatively good health, and um, he called Elder Rudd one day and asked him to ac- accompany him. This is right before October conference, I think in the fall, and asked him to go up to Utah State with him. He'd been called on to speak up there. And Elder Rudd was happy to do that because he, he, Matthew Kelly never liked to go anywhere alone. He liked to bring a missionary with him or someone someone to talk with. And so they had a long history of that. So they're driving, and he said, there's something I need to let you know that I, I, want, to, I want someone to know, and I, you're the one, I'm not going to be here very long. Hmm. He said, um, Elder Rudd said in his, he, we interviewed him about this, and he said, Well, what do you mean? <laughs> he said, My time is, on, uh, is almost up. My The Lord and I have come to an agreement, and I'm not going to be here very long. And I need someone to know that so that you'll know what to say to my wife and my family when I'm not here. And he said, I thought he was just, he said, you need to get some more sleep or whatever. <laughs> he said, No, no. No, he said, I'm not afraid. He said, He said, uh, I, I know it's going to be soon. I don't know exactly when, but I know how it's going to happen. And he explained how it's going to happen. This will probably come out in a short video that mm-hmm. we're doing, right? He explained how it's going to happen and Elder Rudd finally began to believe him. He, he said, but you're in good health. You're young. He said, well, I know something the doctors don't know. And so um, he kept pr- priming this over the next several weeks. So it comes time to go down. And I was it lay the cornerstone for the LA mm-hmm, temple? The and they Church. had apostles going down. And he was taking the train down. And he asked Elder Rudd to be sure that he was going to be there to meet him when he got home. So he gets down to LA. They have their, set, their ceremonies on Saturday. He's staying at a hotel with his wife, Elva, Alva, right? Mm-hmm. And they, he called her Sue. Uh, nobody knows why. But that was Matthew Kelly. He was a funny guy. So he had President Kimball, and others were in the same place they were staying. Saturday night they have a big banquet kind of dinner, and they. Uh, excuse me. We're having an interview. Can, oh, sorry. No, thank you. Sorry. Did I uh, interrupt anything? No. There? Go ahead. So they're having, they had a big event that night. He was, he was reportedly the life of the party, uh, having a good time. And he had told Elder Rudd, I know exactly how this is going to happen. I'm going to have a good meal and I'm going to go to sleep and I'm going to wake up. He always woke up about four or five in the morning and read a book before breakfast. He was a speed reader. I'm going to wake up at my usual time. I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to be gone. My wife is going to pick up the phone and say, Glenn, Matt's gone. And you need to know what to say to her. Mm. Well, they go to L.A. He's the life of the party that night. He, they go back to their room. Happens exactly like he had told them. Wow. And Elder Rudd said when he heard the phone ring, he knew. Mm. And so when he was there to meet him, he was coming back in a, in a casket. And um, it's it's quite a remarkable. <laughs> Three it brings tears is. to my eyes.
2: Me too. And also mm. he he didn't have any fear of death. No. He. Um, I don't remember who he said this to, probably was Glenn as well, Glenn Rudd. He said, uh, well, if I wake up on this side of the veil, I just report to whoever's in charge. President McKay. You know, mm-hmm. the prophet. And if I wake up on the other side of the veil, I just report to whoever who's <laughs> in charge over there and do what they tell me. So he, he had no fear. Oh. It's a beautiful uh, attitude. Yeah, uh,
0: that's a wonderful story.
2: Uh, and, and he apparently was completely at peace. And his wife found him and... Called President Kimball.
1: They called President Kimball in, and it was so quick that there was no, nothing to be done. He mm-hmm. was he was just gone, mm-hmm. and but he knew it.
0: Wow, well,
2: wow. And his last words to I believe his someone in the family or in the, the group where he was at in the party the night before, his final words were, "Life is eternal. Mm-hmm. Life is eternal. That's what he believed. He knew." Mm-hmm. So that's kind of been a a theme for us as well, to remember that idea. It's been very strengthening to me, particularly in light of events in the last few years. Marcy lost her husband. I lost my father and sister over the last year or so. We've had to keep these things in mind, haven't we? (laughs) It's been helpful. It's been helpful. um, Yes,
0: having an eternal perspective is very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My um, father-in-law passed away last year. Ninety-three, I think, or ninety-two, but he was very good friends with Truman Matson. Oh. They were almost like brothers. They grew up on the same block. Yeah. In Grantsville. Yes. Yeah. So they they knew each other quite quite well. Um, well, how did all of this help you, or has it changed how you study the scriptures?
2: I don't know that it's changed it at all, but it certainly deepened my my study. Um, I should tell one other story that was important to our project. So on our way home from New Zealand, we stopped in Hawaii. We wanted to meet with uh, the head of the Polynesian Cultural Center and look at the New Zealand village there and discovered that they had found some documents uh, in the the Matthew Kelly family. And we didn't quite know where that had all happened, but they, they were on display and we thought, oh, how interesting. So later that year, uh, or fo- in the following year, I went on a trip to um, Los Angeles with my sister, the one that passed away. And we ended up in our old, my old home ward in Glendale, just for the weekend, you know, as you do. And who should be in that ward that Sunday but the grandson of Matthew Kelly and his wife. And I got talking to them, and they invited me to their home after. And we ended up um, discussing these. I said, have you heard of these documents? And they said, oh yeah, I think it comes from our collection. And she went out in the back and opened her garage door and it was full of Matthew Call documents and artifacts. <laughs> they began putting them all over their living room, and I just I was floored as a filmmaker, this is what we do. We make things out of photos and artifacts. you know we show this. We, and I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And so um, I went home and met with the folks at the Special Collections at BYU, and I said, you need to contact this family. These things are in a garage in the heat. You know, these won't last. And so that began a process, I believe, of BYU acquiring this. It took some negotiating and then, of course, years to process. I believe it's something like eight boxes full of uh, things, including scriptures and photos and telegrams and all kinds of things pertinent to this man's life so we were that was another important part of this i believe getting that collection where it belonged uh, and safe and then um, you know you ask about scriptures well at one point our scriptures were somebody's writing in the present just like these documents you know his journal and letters at one point, th- these are just people's stories that were written down. And so, I, I guess I just feel strongly about treasuring uh, things from the past and also things from the recent past in our own families. These become a version of the Scriptures for each one of us. And so, uh, I-, I don't know that it's changed my study of the Scriptures, but it's deepened it. It's deepened my appreciation for what these are and what they mean. And, um, and I, I, I'm just glad we got to have a small part to play in bringing these things to a safe place. And and I guess we have to cherish what these words have been through to get to each one of us now.
0: Yes, yes. Well now, these are the scriptures you use that you have in front of you. And so just let people know it's the smaller version of the quad. So it's very thick, but not very dimensions are very small. So are you keeping a journal on the side? How how are you handling this?
2: Um, I I do journal, um, but my my current approach to scripture study is I combine it with the conference talks. And so, and I like, I'm old school. I I have nothing against, you know, computerized things and I enjoy, you know, digital scriptures from time to time, but I find I get distracted too easily. (laughs) You know, I get, if I'm on my phone, I I get pulled into other oh, things. Okay, so so I, I do better on the hard copy day to day. Yeah, But I, I understand the search function. I enjoy it. I use it. But my, you asked about journaling. So I I will um, read a conference report, read all the footnotes in the scriptures, and then take notes. And yeah. I just keep notes in oh, okay. my conference report. I and I just put a date. And, and I'm, I'm just big into footnotes right now. I just think that they link the modern apostles and the scriptures together. So, for example, you could read a talk by Dallin Oaks, go to the footnotes, find out what he studied, right. and then it's as if he's sitting there in your living room with you, mm-hmm. you yes, know? Which definitely. is kind of how we felt with Matthew Kelly. We hear his words and we think, well, he's just like right here telling us how mm-hmm. he feels. Or Jeff Holland, do you want to find out what Jeff Elder Holland has to say about this? Well, go to the footnotes, you find out what he studied, Then, if you go to the Scriptures and read the footnotes, then you get all standard works. You get to find out what the ancient prophets say about it. You get to find out what the Book of Mormon prophets say about it. Then you get to go to the footnotes, find out what the modern, you know, Joseph Smith. And, you know, for me, I I don't study for a prescribed period of time. I look at it like nourishment for my soul. And I just study till I'm full. If I had that time, right, right, you know, yes. I study till I'm satiated and often when I when I do the footnotes, I get very satiated <laughs> by this feast of scriptures and um, So I I guess I just have a great love for the modern the, the modern prophets and apostles mm-hmm. and I I value
0: Well, I can see that your notes are extensive here in the Liahona. Yeah. um, Yeah. Extensive. Yeah, the advantage of the digital part, you know, I've been teaching the Gospel Library for a long time, pretty much since it came out, I think 2009, I think. But the the power is that quite often I have people come to me and they say, well, I love my hard copy of the scriptures. I had it on my mission, and it just... I love the touch, I love the smell, and and I understand that. But I tell them it's not exclusive. Yeah, it's not an either or. If you record the digital, all those notes that you have in that liahona, the magazine, can be passed on to further generations. Right. In fact, I had somebody the other day ask me what mission I'm serving, and I, I told him. And he said, but the problem with the digital version is that these notes I take can't go to you know my children and grandchildren I suggest they can yeah. the church has it set up so that you can you got to go fill some forms out and there's a process but the you can pass that along to future generations and of course the, the real power is is the ability to search yes you know uh, I remember I had a note last year something about and then you can every single word's indexed yeah. And so that, that you can bring it up.
2: Yeah, I, I often combine the two. Mm-hmm. I, I favor this just simply because I like the pictures.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> I like
2: seeing the saints all over the world in these yeah. beautiful photos. And I like that if I get a text, it doesn't distract me. You know, yeah. I, I leave my phone turned off until I've done my study. Yeah. And then,
0: yeah, the, the, you know, the distraction it's a discipline thing. Yeah, the distraction can be a serious problem. Um, but it's not an either or for me. I, I even have my phone set up and devices so that uh, I'm not bothered. They're on, but I'm not being bothered by them because, yeah, you see a text message and it's from your daughter or <laughs> this child, and well, I, I can't answer tell you how
2: many times I've tried to do it on my phone and ended up. You know, on Facebook with Marcy texting, <laughs> or on the phone, or shopping, yeah. You know? And like, oh, the scriptures. Wait, what instead, this this yeah. only gets used for that. Yeah. So, but no, it's I I use the search function all the time, and I really would like to learn more about the recording. You know, how yeah. to take notes. I'd like to yeah. be better at that. Okay. Um. But no, it's not
0: either or for me. Right. Well, Marcy, what is your approach in studying the scriptures?
1: Uh, I've tried over my long history of trying to have have an approach, I've tried many things. I've tried the color coding. I've tried the underlining back in the day. I've tried um, just going through all the standard works along with gospel doctrine. And I have finally in this, in this age, um, have, a, I think a pretty good balance a combo. I like to pick the Book of Mormon and keep reading it over and over with notes In the hard copy in my scriptures right here i have the larger version um, with notes and i love to be reminded as i'm reading of notes that i've taken in years past with highlights you can see Mm -hmm. i've got color highlights and things anyway uh, but then i love the come follow me program Mm. so i am converted to that and now what i do is i do that exclusively on my phone and i love that i can go to anything they're recommending in that topic in that very um select Set of verses and mm-hmm. and chapters, and click on it, and I'm all, I'm where I need to be so quickly. Yeah. So I have that combo.
0: Yeah. It was the one of the brethren. I don't know which one, but one of the brethren recommended that the Come Follow Me should be up there like a banner, mm-hmm. so yes. that when you open the yes. when you yep. open the app, it's it's right there. Yep. Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, it's it's very valuable. I and I make a point to read every single thing that's in that lesson for the week. Every conference talk, every note mm-hmm. that's in there, and I love that. Yeah. yeah. So it's working.
0: Do any of you just listen to the scriptures on the device?
1: I can't do that very well. I, I don't.
2: Can't do I'm it. too particular about voices. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And, but my sons, you know, they love the the Bible by James Earl Jones, but that's mm-hmm. Darth Vader to me. <laughs> I know. Just <laughs> stay away from that. Yeah. Know. We did have a copy of the, a version of the Book of Mormon recorded by our neighbor, Lale Woodbury. And I did like that, but I think they don't have it as widely available anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that name, but he was a dear man, a a dean of the College of Fine Arts at BYU, but, you know, his voice isn't available anymore. Mm. So I'm too sensitive about voices. Okay, so it's the voice quality. I know other people do. Our son likes it, you know, one and a half times faster, and, you know, he can get through for me it's not a it's not a race well i I, you know
0: (laughs) i was discussing with somebody the other day well i think i was teaching a class and said now you can actually go twice the speed yeah and i said you could actually tell your Bishop that you've gone through the whole conference <laughs> in about half the time yeah. but I don't think that's what the Spirit intends maybe slower is, yeah. is better I tend in the morning while I'm eating breakfast to listen
2: I do too I yeah. like it in the morning and I I like the analogy of it being like food I had a grandmother that used to do that you know and she'd say you gotta Liz, you've got to get it in your bloodstream she'd say and um, there's, you know, there's a scripture in Jeremiah where he says that. He says, "Thy words were found and I did eat them," mm-hmm. you know. And thy word was unto me the joy, yes. and rejoicing yeah. of my heart. Yeah, so absolutely. I I th- I think they're like food to my soul.
0: Now, do you have a particular time of the day that you try to do it?
2: First thing early. First thing early? Yeah.
0: Now, w- w- what's early for you?
2: Um, it used to be later, but My husband and I study together now, and he's a real early bird. So I get up and study with him, and then sometimes I go back to bed (laughs) 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 because I like to sleep more. I'm a a night owl. Marcy and I are both night owls. Okay.
0: Yeah, my my wife goes to bed early. Uh, We get up. She gets up before I do, and then I have everything set to wake up at 5.15 and mm-hmm. come downstairs in my robe. And yeah. w- We read. I, I, we're not actually studying, but we're reading. And sometimes we have a discussion from it, but we spend about 15 minutes doing that. And then
2: I think people should be um, creative and adaptable to their yes, situation. Absolutely. So when our kids were young, we'd study after dinner because they were yeah. there. And yeah. we also, um, I don't know if people know this, but there are scripture references in the hymn book,
0: yes.
1: So we
2: would we would sing a hymn and then read the references. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, that was a way to have a quick family devotional every day. Yes. Yes. Of course, one of our sons figured out which were the shortest hymns. Oh. No. Then I'd retaliate, and she was like, "How firm a foundation, yeah. all seven verses," you know, just with a big grin on my face, you know. Yeah. So we had fun with that one, but. Um, you know, I, I went through some auto accidents, as Marcy alluded to, and there was a time when I couldn't read. I couldn't read the scriptures because of a post-concussion thing, and I uh, got the, you know, those children's versions with the mm-hmm. illustrations. Yes, That was legitimate for a while. Yeah,
0: we have to be flexible. Very uh, flexible. It, it was a few weeks ago I interviewed somebody, and she's a young mother, and she said, the only time I have is when I'm nursing
2: absolutely and, that's a and I, time.
0: I'm always concerned about women that have you know got three or four children and mm-hmm. the oldest is six years old and how they're are they just feeling
2: about this yeah they're
0: trying their best to destroy the house yeah and you're trying to keep order yeah. and how do you find time to read the scriptures and she said little, oh, she says when, when I'm nursing that's when I can actually take time to read mm-hmm. the scriptures
2: when my kids were little oh that was a tough time and I would type up scriptures on cards and tape them to the mirror when mm-hmm. i'd get ready in the morning and i could just you know memorize mm-hmm. i think memorization even when you're not really trying hard when you just read it over and ponder it um, i think that's getting it in your bloodstream you know and sometimes i'd put cards in my wallet and look at them in red lights and stuff <laughs> you know you got to be creative Yeah with when you're busy yeah, with kids. Yeah, and I, those some of those scriptures still come up in my heart and mind. It's like food storage. Yeah. You, know, you just have it there on recall. And um, oh, there's nothing like that. Yeah,
0: no, that's I the agree. Best. Now, Marcy, you raised six children. How did you manage with them?
1: We um, We had a very irregular schedule, but we would definitely do some kind of scripture reading every morning, and that's about as close as we got to a routine you mentioned the hymns and I'm a widow my husband's been gone what four years now mm. and so I'm alone and right after he passed away I decided to do a hymn a day mm. and that's still marked in my on my phone I did it with my phone because it was just easier to bring up the audio and everything and I just started with hymn number one and if you do that what other 300 and it's almost it's about a year. It's like it's yeah. like yeah. almost a year and I threw a few yeah. uh, children's hymns in there and that was one of the great experiences for me and now when I'm reading my scriptures I still have that on my phone in the notes and when I see a note, I'll click on it and I'll think Oh that, Yeah, that's right. And sometimes I'll pull up the hymn again. Yeah. So I think that's a really wonderful I, I thing. I cross-reference
2: the mm-hmm. hymns with yeah. the scriptures. I think they are scripture and they are. Well, the, they are. Doctrine. We've been
0: told by the general authorities they are and I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed that say they use the hymns as part of their scripture study. Yeah. And I think that's why the Brethren's asking uh, people to get involved in the gospel library in those three areas that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. The scriptures, general conference talks, and the hymns. Yeah. And because those between those three, you've got some powerful stuff You there. want
2: to bring the Spirit in your life? Start with the hymns. It just dries oh, yeah. it
0: down yeah, quickly. Yeah. I, I absolutely yeah. agree. Yeah. It's, it's uh, fantastic. Well, do any either of you have anything else you'd like I, to add?
1: I would like to add one more thing, and that is, back on the Matthew Kelly Project, after nearly 20 years now of uh, tracking this and not knowing exactly where it was going to end, we went through a period from 2014 until about 2019 with illness, accidents, my husband's health, and, um, and getting that archive in place. But it's very interesting to me the timing because we did not have a focus until about the end of 2019, we realized that and it was scripture that brought us to this. It's that scripture, how, how great a cloud of witnesses. We realized that what we had to stand back and say, what have we been doing? We've been gathering all of these testimonies and experiences from witnesses. And we realized that, um, that there was more talk surfacing about miracles in, in our modern day conferences and things. And we looked at the miracles talk. We, got, we felt drawn to that, to, to focus on that talk and realized that those, some of those miracles, um, we didn't even know what had happened to the people. And we felt impressed to try to find them. We found little Joe, the polio boy. We found uh, the bus girl, who had Janice, who has not ever been spoken of by Matthew Cowley, but um, that was important. We found the blind boy in, in New Zealand, found his sister. And she was able to tell us, but we had to track these um, miracle recipients and witnesses of those miracles down. And the timing was so interesting because we did Little Joe, the polio boy in February, the end of February, 2020. One of the last ones we did before the pandemic hit, but we had that locked away. We had been scheduled to do a presentation for the New New Zealand Missionary Society. They meet every April, the Friday night before conference, general conference, uh, of general conference weekend. And they come sometimes from all, you know, from New Zealand. And they meet and they've been doing that for year, decades.
2: One of the best organized. One of the best organized. And right.
1: And, and we had been scheduled to give a presentation on the Matthew Calley Project at the 2020 April reunion. Well, about two weeks before, we got word that it's canceled. No, nobody's meeting. Everything's in lockdown. And we thought, what, are we, what should we do? What should we do? And we had just interviewed Little Joe. And Liz and I said, about Monday before the conference, we said, let's just make a short video that can be, You know, we live in this modern age of technology, duh. We're not in person, but let's just make a short video and send it to the Matthew Kelly ma- mailing list, reunion mailing list. So we scrambled things together, and in about three or four days, we made this eight minute video that featured little Joe, because that's the interview we had just done. It got so, sent out- he
2: was a little boy. He was a little boy. At the time of the talk in 1953. Mm-hmm. Right. And Matthew Kelly had blessed him and then addressed him and talked about him in his general conference talk of that same year. And it's a very touching story.
1: So we made this little thing, just thinking it was going and, and we weren't, I wasn't, I did the editing, I wasn't really careful with you know the name, how the names are presented. It was only going to the missionary list and we had to do it so quickly. So we got it out and we decided we would have it released in the mailing list during that two hour block that would have been the reunion on Friday night. And we did that and it was great. And it went out and we had a private link and I wake up Saturday morning, it was on YouTube. I wake up on Saturday morning and I see, people are watching this video. So in Saturday morning conferences, I'm seeing the numbers going up, people started sharing it, right? And I'm thinking, oh boy, <laughs> it's going out there. And now the, the church is very particular about how names are presented and, mm-hmm. you know, just the, what would you call that? The protocol, the media protocol of how the church, so the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's not just LDS. And I realized during Saturday morning session, I don't even know the latest things. This thing's go, this is going now, and I better figure this out. So in between those two sessions, I had to pull it up again, call everybody I could think of who would answer and say, what's the current protocol? How do I mention President Monson, who has passed away as president of the church, and get all that fixed in editing? And... It kept going out, and then we made it public after we got it done right, <laughs> all the things oh, and done right. What
2: was so interesting about that is that Marcy found a talk given by Matthew Kelly in General Conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even remember the date of it, but it was right around the, the time of the polio epidemic. And he made some really compelling statements about how you know they can shut you down, and they can stop you from going to church or whatever, but they can't stop the priesthood of God. Mm-hmm. It's, it's riveting. And what we also realized was that Matthew Kelly had a particular gift. And when he was made an apostle, the president of the church at the time told him, don't ever write your talks. Mm. Speak from the spirit. This is an unusual thing. That era is no longer. I mean, no, the talks it's... are very well organized now. Yes. But he had a gift and the prophet understood that. And so it really comes through in this, this little clip that we used in this, Piece and it suddenly was very relevant to what we were then going through with the pandemic, the COVID 19 pandemic. And you know, it gives me goosebumps just to think about it, even now. And I guess what I'd like to say is that we are watching some really interesting things unfolding in our world right now, and voices that are speaking against uh, faith, against a narrative that would you know, be faithful to the Savior Jesus Christ. Many opposing voices and suddenly our project, which is testifying of the reality of miracles, Mm. delivered by an apostle at BYU in 1953, is feeling very relevant to our age. And we are in, I think, great need of the message that this has for us right now. Mm. So suddenly it just, it just came into sharp focus, didn't it? Almost overnight, and we thought, my goodness, we've been gathering all this this stuff, and then, well, here we go. I guess we hadn't really known what we were supposed to do with it until then, and then it became, it started becoming very clear. So now it's a project focused exactly on that one talk and the idea of miracles and faith to, to bring them about, and so here we are.
0: Yeah, we just had in the last conference talk um, about miracles. Was it Elder Rasband, I think? Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, it was part of our priesthood lesson um, uh, this last week. I and think President the Nelson
2: even yeah. comes right out and says, yeah. Yeah. learn about miracles. Yeah. Yeah. So we feel like it's very relevant.
0: Well, I can really see how the Lord's had a hand in all of this, and you've often talked about, you use the word windfall. I'm thinking providence. You know. You're right. Yeah. That's the, not the right yeah. phrase. It feels like <laughs> the, the, the Lord has stepped in, and things aren't done overnight. Uh, no. Even the Book of Mormon that we have, I mean, I know Joseph Smith did it in 50 or 60 days, but the, the point is for most of us, the Lord sets things up well in advance, and it just takes time for it to, to reveal when it, needs, when it needs to be done. Yeah. Well, I think we're about out of time here. Um, I know you've got some papers in front of you. I don't know if we had anything that you want to share, or?
2: I think we've covered no? it. No? OK. I think we just All
0: right. Well, as I told you before we began and started this recording, I always ask further testimonies. So who would like to go first?
2: Would you like me to go first? Okay. I'd be happy to go first. All right. Um, I, I'm, I'm honored, really, to be part of this. So thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. I want to bear my witness that um, we are part of a great uh, work in the latter days. I know that what Joseph Smith saw really happened. <laughs> And therefore, the restoration happened, and therefore, we are part of um, a great work. And that the the church that was organized by him is true, and that we follow living prophets today. And that authority was restored through the prophet Joseph Smith, and it is carried down to our modern time. And I'm just so grateful and so mindful of this power that is available to us. And it, it just really makes all the difference. I'm grateful. For especially for the Book of Mormon, but all the scriptures um, and the testimonies contained in them and the, the truth. and uh, I, I feast from the scriptures every day, literally every day, because uh, we live in such a troubled world that we have to cling to these things, and uh, they are a source of great strength to me. I am I'm grateful to, to know that we are led by a living prophet, Russell Nelson, and I'm grateful for that that great blessing in my life. I see things going on in the news and I just think, okay, follow the prophet. (laughs) Just follow him. And when I do, I feel peace. And uh, that is my witness that, that, um, that the Savior Jesus Christ leads our church and that he is at the head of things today and that he is um, preparing the world for his second coming. And I, I'm just honored and grateful to be a small part of that work in any, in any way. And I know it's true and uh, I'm grateful for the promptings of the Holy Ghost. I'm grateful for the witness that comes uh, in my life and that we have access to the Atonement of Jesus Christ to overcome our challenges and be healed and blessed and I'm grateful for temples in modern day uh, and the, the ordinances that bring this power into our lives. I um, bear my witness of these things in humility in the name of Jesus Christ.
1: Amen. 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 I would like to bear my testimony of the power of faith and the many, many things that we are witnessing in time right now that um, we have been blessed to have to live in this time that have not been available before now. I am, I am just thankful that we have a living prophet, that he is guiding us in ways that, that he only could have known through prophecy and revelation. I am thankful that we have been given so many tools from teachings like the word of wisdom to methods and access to scriptures and words of truth to opportunities to minister in ways that um, in the past in my lifetime had seemed mundane or repetitive i um, thinking of some of the old ministering programs that that we have now put aside and left more to personal revelation and um, being in tune with the spirit to reach other people i am thankful that we have had an opportunity a window of prosperity and knowledge poured out upon the earth that is available to just about anybody who is willing to receive it and in my own personal life i'm especially thankful that I have a knowledge of powers beyond the veil, of ancestors and angels watching over us who are ready to help us in ways that we aren't even conscious of most of the time. But just the knowledge that we're there and the opportunity to express thankfulness for those blessings is, is magnificent. I had a friend who said, after studying the church for 10 years, he's passed away now, he said he finally joined the church because he had traveled all over the world and he found it was the only safe place he had ever seen. And I remember that from time to time that we are blessed with safety through revelation, through prophetic guidance, and through our own personal prayers and others beyond the veil in ways that we often take for granted. And I am so grateful to have at least a limited knowledge of those resources. And I know that Joseph Smith was the prophet of God who restored the church in this dispensation of time. And those who have followed him since have had special missions to prepare us for these days. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.